Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Last week we read Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, and asked a relatively simple question, and that's this. What is a pastor? And while we don't always think about him in those terms, the Apostle Paul provides a great template. In his ministry to the Ephesian Christians, Paul set an example that every church leader would do well to follow. He was a man of faithful character, courageous leadership, and sincere love. Now, obviously, it's incredibly important for pastors like me and Zach and elders like ours to be reminded of those basic truths. But it's also important for every believer to know those things. You need to know what to look for. You need to know what to expect from the people who will answer to God for how they shepherd your souls. But today, as we embark on a new sermon series in First and Second Thessalonians, we'll ask another very important question. What is a God-honoring church? What is a God-honoring church? What kind of church would make Paul spend more than three chapters expressing thanksgiving to God? How did the church in Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, depending on how particular you are about those things, how did the church in Thessalonica become this kind of church? And what are the glorious results that come from this kind of church? And at the end of the day, we'll see that a God-honoring church starts with a right response to the bedrock truths of the gospel of God. So open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for Sunday morning. All that we do, all it represents, week in and week out. Thank you for God-honoring music. Thank you for the opportunity to pray together. Thank you for the opportunity to simply be in the same room. As we're so often pulled in different directions and have so many priorities and concerns, Know us and care for us and listen to us. And thank you that we have the privilege of being a part of any church, this church, your church, that spans far beyond this little piece of property. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be the church that you call us to be. I pray that we would learn something from the Christians in Thessalonica a long time ago as we consider what kind of church you call us to be and what kind of church we want to be for your glory. And Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who brings us together as brothers and sisters, but most importantly, brings us to you as your children. Thank you for Christ's body. Thank you for Christ's blood. Thank you that our ransom has been paid, that our punishment has been taken, and that our victory has been achieved through Christ's resurrection. Lord, again, we thank you, we love you, we honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. 
Amen. Amen, Calvin. We're a very participatory church, as you might have heard from my two-year-old. Now, Thessalonica was a major city of the Roman Empire. And it's still a large Greek city today, going by the name of Thessaloniki. It was founded by one of Alexander the Great's generals. And by the time Paul came to town, it had already existed for almost 400 years. We can read about Paul's trip to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. As he usually did, Paul started his work there by preaching the gospel in the local synagogue to his fellow Jews. But he ultimately found more success among Gentiles, including some prominent women within the city. But after just a brief stay in Thessalonica, perhaps as little as a few weeks, Paul was forced to flee. The Jews in town had started to get tired of his meddling. So Paul was understandably concerned about the church that he was forced to leave behind. It was young. It was small. And it faced significant opposition. So Paul sent Timothy, one of his co-workers, to check in on them. And thankfully, when Timothy came back, he gave Paul a very positive report. So Paul sits down and writes a letter to this fledgling church. And this letter is overflowing with thanksgiving for this scrappy, underdog, God-honoring group of believers in Jesus. So starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, the first most overwhelming impression that you might get from first Thessalonians is how thankful Paul is for this church. 
But how did they become, against all odds, such a wonderful church? Well, you certainly can't separate it from God's grace. Rather than just patting the Thessalonians on the back and telling them how great a job they've done, Paul thanks God for them. And he reminds them of God's gracious action in bringing them to where they currently are. He says they are loved and chosen by God. That loved and chosen language sounds a lot like how God speaks of the Old Testament Israelites. The nation of Israel wasn't loved and chosen by God because they were awesome. They weren't. They were loved and chosen by God because God is gracious. Even if you set aside all the theological debates around words like chosen, of which there are different and respectable opinions within this very church, you can't get around the fact that for this church in Thessalonica, God's grace lies at the root of who they are. Individually and collectively. In addition, this church, you can get just a quick little glimpse at that preaching in Acts 17, starting in verse 2. This is when Paul is in Thessalonica. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Preaching the gospel is powerful. The power rests not so much in the person preaching, but in the message delivered. I might also add that preaching isn't only powerful when professionals do it. Preaching can be just as powerful when it's done by a man talking to his neighbor about Jesus while standing in the driveway. Or when it's done by a mom staying at home and teaching the gospel to her kids. Or when it's done by a stranger sharing their faith on a park bench. Preaching is powerful. And part of the reason this church is who they are and why they are where they are is because of Paul's preaching. But it wasn't just Paul's preaching about Jesus that created this wonderful church. It was founded thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, preaching is all well and good. But let's be honest. There have been countless wonderful sermons delivered in the history of humanity that didn't lead to a single conversion of an unbeliever to Christ. That kind of thing can only happen with the Holy Spirit's help. That may be part of why Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. A sinner does not come to proclaim Christ as Lord purely by their own power, 
but the Holy Spirit is at work. And that was the case with this church in Thessalonica. So this wonderful church exists by God's grace. Thanks to Paul's preaching about Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit and the hearts and minds of those who heard it. But what are the practical characteristics, the actions, the attitudes that make this church so great? We see three of them in verse three. The first one being works of faith. Many Christians put their defenses up any time we hear the word works. Paul is crystal clear in his writing that Christians are not saved by our works, but by faith in Christ's works. But that doesn't negate the fact that our own works of faith are the natural, necessary result of faith in Jesus. The Thessalonians' good works are not the cause of their salvation, but it's the consequence of their salvation. As Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And apparently the church in Thessalonica had good works to show. Another characteristic that makes this church so great from verse 3 is their labor of love. Contrary to the ways we often talk about it today, love is not just some easy emotional experience that happens on its own. It takes work. It takes labor. Love isn't only a feeling or a sentiment. It's concrete and visible. Love isn't merely an ideal or a goal. It's an action and a practice. And this church was laboring at their love. The third characteristic of this church from verse 3 was their steadfast hope. This church may have been young. But their feet had already been held to the fire. Verse 6 tells us that these Christians had been subjected to much affliction. They've already had to put their money where their mouth is and show endurance in the faith. And thankfully, they passed that test. And though their present circumstances were hard, their future hope had not wavered. They had a steadfast, enduring hope. So we've seen some idea of how this church got to be who they are and where they are. And we've also started to see some of the practical characteristics that make this church unique and great and cause Paul to give thanks. But what are the results of this God-honoring church in Thessalonica? Well, the first is one that we've seen throughout the entire passage, maybe the big theme of the letter, and that's Thanksgiving. You know, Paul loved all of his churches, everyone he was involved in. He loved them all. But truthfully, some of them could be real headaches. I'm looking at you, city of Corinth. And while this church in Thessalonica isn't perfect, we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. 
While they're not perfect, Paul's overwhelming response to these believers is one to be thankful for it. The second result of this God-honoring church is seen in verses 7 through 8. They've set a good example for other Christians. This church was the kind of church that others should want to imitate. Because they imitated Paul. And Paul imitated Jesus. All the churches around Macedonia and Achaia could learn a thing or two from this tiny body of believers in Thessalonica. They were setting a good example. And the final result of this wonderful little church, verse 8, spreading the good news of the gospel to the surrounding world. The word of the Lord sounded forth from them. Paul says their faith had gone out everywhere. Their words, their actions, their attitudes, their example served as a powerful public witness to the truth of the gospel of God. Early Christian preacher John Chrysostom calls this church sweet-smelling ointment that scented the air with its perfume. This church smelled like Jesus from the way they lived, the way they taught, the way they spoke. And thanks to them, the surrounding world was starting to get a whiff. So clearly Paul had plenty of reason to thank God for this church. Against all odds, by God's grace, through the gospel preached, and the Spirit's power, this small, young, beleaguered church was shining brightly. Their works of faith, their labors of love, their steadfast hope testified to the legitimacy of this gospel. The legitimacy of of their salvation. And as a result, people like Paul were praising God for them. Surrounding churches were being challenged to follow in their footsteps, and the word of the Lord was sounding forth in the world around them. So with all that in mind, it's no wonder that Paul spends so much time expressing gratitude to God. For this small group of believers. But what might all of that mean for us? A church in Fishers, Indiana. Namely, how might our church become a little more like the one we've read about this morning? Well, simply put, in the same ways they did. They did not become such a great church purely by their own efforts. God's grace was at the root of it. If we try to become some awesome church purely through our own clever ideas, our hard work, or our savvy marketing, apart from a reliance upon God's grace, we will inevitably fall short, at least in the standards that matter. They became a great church through sound preaching of the gospel. Preaching that clearly and consistently appealed to scripture, reminded its hearers of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, and proclaimed him as the Christ, 
the Lord, the Savior, the Son of God. And while many may suggest that this simple, basic, biblical preaching may not be popular enough, entertaining enough, or relevant enough for our day and age, it is still just as necessary as ever. And they became a great church, not just by hearing sound preaching of the gospel with their ears, but by the power of the Holy Spirit changing their hearts and minds. May we be a church where sinners are coming to faith in Christ and where saints are being more and more transformed into the holy image of Christ in a way so astounding that can only be described as supernatural. If we want our church to become a bit more like the one we've read about this morning, remember God's grace, expect sound preaching, And ask the Holy Spirit to be at work in all of us. What God-honoring characteristics should our church strive to display? Well, simply put, the same ones they did. Our faith should not be just a set of beliefs that we hold in our heads. Or a doctrinal statement we subscribe to. Rather, our faith shows itself... Through good works. Our love for God, our love for each other, our love for our neighbors isn't just a pleasant idea, a noble goal, or a saying on a banner in the sanctuary. It's concrete, it's visible. We're laboring at it. And may we display a steadfast hope. A willingness to suffer loss now, if we must. Because we know with certainty that we have something better lying ahead. Something worth suffering much affliction for. May our church be a place that's known for works of faith. Known for labors of love. And known for steadfast hope in Christ. Whatever else we have or whatever else we don't have, may these three, faith, hope, but God-honoring results, should our church long to see. Well, you guessed it, the same ones they did. May we be a source of thanksgiving for those who know us. May we be a positive example to the believers and other churches around us. And may the word of the Lord sound forth from people like us into the surrounding world, all the places that God may send us. May our church be another sweet-smelling perfume of the gospel of God in a world that desperately needs it. But before we close, we should devote some attention to verses 9 and 10. Some have argued that these verses serve as an excellent summary of really the whole gospel. I'd argue that these verses serve as an excellent summary of a right response to the gospel. The way to respond to the good news of Christ is to turn from sin, a.k.a. repentance, to serve God, a.k.a. obedience. 
to wait for Jesus to return, a.k.a. faith, and to have confidence in the day of judgment, a.k.a. trust in who Christ is and what Christ has done. No church, no Christian, even if we embody tons of virtues that the church in Thessalonica did, No church and no Christian can truly honor God apart from a right response to the gospel. I suppose that's the beginning of it all. Now again, no church, whether it's the one in Thessalonica or this one right here, right now, is perfect. There will be issues that pop up in these letters that Paul has to address. Some suggest that while Paul's initial words are extremely positive, he still had some concerns about what the future might hold for these believers. Nevertheless, 1 Thessalonians 1 paints a beautiful picture of how a God-honoring church comes into existence, what kinds of characteristics it displays, and the glorious impact that it can have on the world around it. So by God's grace and with God's help, may the same be true of this church. May we imitate them as they imitate Christ. May we follow their example. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for other believers in other places and even in other times. Thank you that every single one of us, I'm sure, can think of believers in Jesus who have set an example for us. An example of faithfulness, an example of love, an example of obedience, an example of holiness. It's good to have those examples. And Lord, I pray that we would follow in their footsteps. And thank you for the examples of other churches. Thank you that we are not the only church in this world. And that really we are just one small outpost of a much broader church that spans times and languages and traditions and cultures and borders. And Lord, I pray for other churches out there that they would be a good example for us that we would be a good example for them, and that all of us collectively would sound forth the word of the Lord in this world that so desperately needs it. I pray that you would help our church shine like a light that we're called to be, that we would be salt and light in this world, that others would see our good works, the kind of stuff that we've talked about this morning, and would glorify God because of it. So, Lord, again, help us be the church you call us to be, the people you call us to be, all of which you've already declared us to be by your grace, by faith in Christ. You've given us this new identity individually and collectively. And so, Lord, help us live it out for your glory in this world. Again, thank you for your son, Jesus. Help us have a steadfast hope and unshaking confidence that we will stand in the day of judgment because of who you are 
and what you've done for us in your death and in your resurrection. We love you. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.